Hebrews, chapter 10 this morning, Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Hebrews together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hand this morning, and then you can not only hear the Word of God, but also uh, follow along with your own eyes reading it, which allows the Word to have its full impact in our lives. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, the Spirit of God declares, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, speaking of the Old Testament sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, they, then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And therefore, when he... That is, Jesus came into the world. He said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them which are, being, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering... He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after these days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And now where there is Remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for these 18 verses. Thank you for all that is bound up in them. We thank you for the revelation that they are, Lord, of your heart and of your wisdom and of the heart and the wisdom and the power of Jesus. And Lord, we want to be impacted by these truths. We ask that you would 
give us a fresh and a greater understanding of the truths concerning our Savior, and Lord, that you would produce an even greater awe within our lives and a greater need to worship you as a result of that. We pray, Lord, that no matter where a person is in this room today, never having heard the Bible even one time, or new to the Bible, or decades, Lord, invested in the study of Your Word, that because You are able to do it, You would make this simple and clear and apply it to each one of our lives as You see our needs so clearly. And we ask these things of You, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This morning we come to the end of a very long section, uh, doctrinal section of the book of Hebrews that began all the way back in chapter 5, verse 1. And let me just say by way of introduction, if you're new to the Bible, um, we come to a passage of the Bible that is one of the deepest passages in all of the Scripture. The book of Hebrews is like that, and it kind of presumes on the part of the listener a knowledge of the Old Testament and the Old Testament sacrifices. So, if you get lost a little bit for a moment or two, uh, just understand what you can. We'll apply it to your life. You'll get the gist of what's being said, but uh, don't be overwhelmed by that and miss what the Lord wants to speak to, to your life. So, from chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through chapter 10, verse 18, this very, very strong doctrinal or a strong teaching section uh, in the epistle that is then now going to give way as verse 19 begins, and we look at it next time, Lord willing, will give way to the writer heading into exhortations about how all of this doctrine or all of this teaching should impact our lives and how we live our lives. And in the most recent chapters of these doctrinal chapters, the writer has uh, been showing Jesus to be a superior high priest to the Old Testament high priest, the author of a better covenant for a relationship with God, a better basis for a relationship with God than the Old Covenant under Moses. And in this passage this morning, the writer explains why the sacrifice of Jesus, that is, His death upon the cross for our sins, why that sacrifice is superior to the Old Testament sacrifices. Now, when you read Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, one of the things that you might notice is that the writer uh, repeats certain words over and over again. And it isn't because he doesn't have a satisfactory vocabulary that he can't mix it up a little bit. This is the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When he writes and he repeats words over and over and over and over again, it's because he's trying to make a point, and it's so important a point that he doesn't want anybody to miss it. And one of the words that's used over and over again in chapters 9 and 10 is the word once. He repeats that word no less than six times in the two chapters. He speaks, uses it in chapter 9, verse 12, and then again in verse 26 and 27 and 28. 
In chapter 10, he uses the word in verse 2, and then again in verse 10. The second word that he repeats in the passage is the word one, and it is used first in chapter 10, verse 12, and then repeated again in verse 14 of the same chapter. And then there's a very significant phrase attached to the word once in verse 10, and that is the phrase, for all. Notice in verse 10, but, that, but by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And the writer of the book of Hebrews takes these uh, three words and he uses them and weaves them together to pr provide one of the most evangelistic messages and evangelistic passages in all of the Bible, the word once, the word one, and the word all. Now, notice in verse 10 that he tells us that Jesus died for our sins once. We might ask ourselves, why is that important? It's very important to the writer. So, it ought to be important to us, but sometimes we don't know why it's important to us and what are the implications of the fact that Jesus died once. And, and so, this morning we want to look at the case here in these 18 verses that the Holy Spirit builds for the importance of the fact that Jesus died for our sins once and then to understand the implications of that for our lives today. Now, notice in verse 1, first of all, that the, he tells us that the animal sacrifices required by the law of Moses, that these were merely a shadow of Jesus. They were a shadow of the sacrifice that he would come into the world to make in order to provide us with salvation and the washing away of our sins. Now, a shadow is certainly better than nothing. But a shadow is never a substitute for the real thing. A shadow is valuable in that it speaks, though on a limited level, of the existence of someone. But it's not a very satisfactory revelation of that someone. It tells us that someone exists, but doesn't tell us much more uh, about him than that. I was out riding my bicycle this week. It's a useless thing, but I like it. So I was riding my bicycle along, and I had something happen to me that doesn't happen very often. I'm on a long stretch of road, and as I'm on this long stretch of road, someone has pulled up behind me, and they're drafting me. So they're letting me do the hard work, or the hardest of the work, coming in behind, and they're efficiently using uh, me taking the, out that wind a little bit to follow me. And the reason that I knew that I was being drafted was they came in, it slipped in behind me. I didn't hear any clicking of gears yet or anything like that. But I noticed off of my peripheral vision because of the way the sun was uh, hitting, I could see their shadow right here. Now, people don't draft me very often because I'm not that fast of a bike rider. So I'm a plotter. I like to just go and go and go. And so I saw the shadow, and then I looked. I got a little mirror on my glasses, so I looked back, and it was two 90-year-old nuns in their full habit. They were following me. So I said, all right, that makes sense. Now, but I saw the shadow, 
And so I, I knew I was being followed, and I looked in that same mirror, and then I could see the man clearly. I could see his hair, his hair color. I could see his gear, his helmet, the brand of it, the bike that he was on, all of that. So the shadow spoke of his existence, but it was only in then looking at him that I received the fuller revelation. And so the law of Moses was like that. It spoke of the existence of this Messiah that was going to come into the world. It spoke of the existence of a salvation that he would provide, but it would only be once we saw Jesus that we would truly come to know him in a full way in the salvation that he has provided. For instance, uh, if you are a person who carries the picture of a loved one in your wallet or in your purse, the picture is fabulous in that it is a accurate representation of that person that you love, but it's very limited. No one would say that it fully represents the person that you love. I mean, you can't dance with that picture. You can't talk with that picture. You can't tell a joke and laugh with that picture. You can't carry on a conversation with that picture. Not in public anyway. I can think you're crazy. But so there's the limitations of, of those kind of things. In the same way, the animal sacrifices were a picture of the sacrifice that the Messiah would come into the world to provide us with uh, the, the forgiveness of sins, but they could never compare with the real thing. It's kind of like the difference between when you're really, really hungry and the difference between sitting down and having someone give you a cookbook full of pictures as opposed to putting a plate of steaming hot food in front of you, allowing you to eat that. And, and so a big difference between the two. The sacrifices required by the law of Moses, they were a good thing to a point, but they were never intended to draw people away from the real thing, and the real thing is faith in Christ and a relationship with Christ, which is what these religious, these uh, Jewish believers that the writer is writing to were being tempted to do is to leave the substance of a relationship, a face-to-face -face relationship with Christ by the Spirit of God and go back to pictures and back to shadows and back to uh, forms. And once the fulfillment, the writer is saying, of the picture, the fulfillment of the shadow appears in human history, then the shadow becomes irrelevant. Now, notice number two, also in verse one, he tells us that the fact that the Old Testament sacrifices were offered continually, and they were, they were offered daily, they were offered weekly, they were offered monthly, they were offered annually. And the fact that God had them offering these offerings all of the time was God's way of communicating that they could not provide a person who desired to approach God with the perfection required to do so. In other words, the Old Testament sacrifices, they would be offered to provide kind of a temporary covering of sin. And so here you are, you come to the tabernacle, you come to the uh, temple, you bring your sin offering, the sin offering is offered there to the Lord, but then within five minutes afterwards, you have an impure thought. 
Uh, you become impatient with your spouse or one of the kids, sinfully impatient. Or you become covetous over something you see somebody else riding or, 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 or that they're wearing. And as a result, almost instantly, though they just offered the sacrifice five minutes earlier, almost instantly they lack then the confidence of a clean conscience with which to approach God in prayer and in worship and in petition. All of that in contrast to what we have in Christ. See, most of us are Gentiles. We come to, in this room, we come to know the Lord from a Gentile background. And so, we have not been under the old covenant for some portion of our life. And how cumbersome it was, how detailed it was, how frustrating it, it could be in many, many ways. And so sometimes because we don't come to Christ out of that background, we can fail to have an appreciation for how simple our relationship with God is through faith in Christ. And the writer of the book of Hebrews wants even us to understand we're very, very blessed. You take the forgiveness of sins that we have as a result of uh, Jesus and putting our faith in, in Him uh, in opposition to offering the sacrifice, sinning immediately, and then realizing, oh no, i got to go get another lamb, or I've got to go get another goat or something to offer to the Lord to then, uh, then be right with God. And then instead of five minutes later, ten minutes later, I fumble again and I sin, and the thing just goes on and on and on like that. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, that is God, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And the idea is that the blood of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is continually cleansing us of sin. Why is that a magnificent provision? Because we continually sin. Try as we might not to sin, we still fall short of perfection on a daily basis. The fact that the Old Testament sacrifices were offered over and over again, the worshiper never had the sense that their sin had ever been finally and completely dealt with. And the reason that they felt that was because it's only through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus that sin has been dealt with finally and decisively and completely. Now, notice number three as he brings out these various points of the superiority of the sacrifice of, of Christ. In verses two and three, he makes his third point, and he declares that, in essence, Far from providing a complete and final forgiveness of sins, the Old Testament sacrifices reminded men of their sins on a regular basis. Even the offering associated with the Day of Atonement, which is the single holiest day of the Jewish religious calendar, that offering on that day only brought the forgiveness of sins 
up to date. It only dealt with past sin. It only dealt with sin that occurred prior to the sacrifice. But subsequent sins after the offering on the day of atonement, they required further sacrifices and offerings and and necessitated the Day of Atonement and those sacrifices to be offered again the following year and the year after and the year after. Again, right after the sacrifice of the one goat on the Day of Atonement and the releasing of the second goat out of the camp to symbolize Jesus' death for our sins, but then also separating our, his, our sin from us because of his sacrifice, if you were witnessing that on the Day of Atonement, if you sinned one minute later, an hour later, a day later, you would then spend the rest of the year waiting for the next Day of Atonement to be forgiven of those sins. Now, that had a lot of consequences. But one of the results of all of that is that under the law of Moses and under that sacrificial system, all of that produced a sin focus, not a forgiveness focus, a sin focus. Now, you contrast that with what we as Christians enjoy in the new covenant based upon Jesus' sacrifice for us. We do not have a sin focus God doesn't intend that. We have a Savior focus. In the Old Testament, their attention was being completely drawn, continually drawn to their sin. Even in the Lord's Supper, which is probably the highest thing that we do as Christians in the partaking of the symbols of Jesus' body and His blood at communion, even in the partaking of the Lord's Supper, there is not supremely in that a sin focus, but a Savior focus. As Jesus declared in initiating the Lord's Supper, He said, do this in remembrance of your sin. He didn't say that. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And if you had been a Jew under the old covenant hearing those words, it'd be like bombs went off inside your head. I no longer have a sin focus as a part of my life and my relationship with God. I am released into a Savior focus now, and the quality of relationship with God that comes out of that is infinitely superior. And so... We do speak of sin and the seriousness of sin and the partaking of the Lord's Supper, but, and, but only in order that we might appreciate in an even greater measure what Christ has done for us in providing us with the forgiveness of sins to cause us to love Him even more and desire to obey Him even more. And so the, the sacrifice that Jesus has provided for us is superior because it doesn't, it relieves us of a sin focus and instead gives us a Savior focus. And I say, praise the Lord for that. <laughs> Just the opinion of one sinner. <laughs> now, the main drawback of the Old Testament sacrifices is that they could not accomplish forgiveness for a sinner once and for 
all. And the worshiper knew that, very conscious of that. Now, number four, in verses uh, four through nine, the writer tells us that it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. In other words, the value of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament was not their blood. We tend to think of that. The supreme value of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament was not in their blood or in their death, but in that they pointed to and they prepared mankind for the coming and the sacrifice of Jesus. They provided a covering, a ritual covering of sin, but they could not provide the washing away of our sins that Jesus provides. And he quotes in verses 5 through 7, he quotes Psalm 40, and he rightly applies it to Jesus. And what he's communicating is this. Stay with me. It's worth the effort. See, I'm back I'm back in my high school trig class. No, you're not. You're in church, and you're studying the Word of God, and you'll be okay. You're up to this. So what he's communicating here in applying Psalm 40 to Jesus is that Jesus did not provide us with salvation by keeping the Old Testament sacrifices and commandments, though he kept all the commandments, without exception, but by offering his life for us on the cross in obedience to the Father's will. That's how he provided us with salvation, not in the keeping of the law, but in offering his life on the cross in obedience to the Father's will and thus paying the required price for the once and for all forgiveness of our sins. And the writer is writing to these Jewish believers, these sacrifices of the Old Testament, they were a type, they were a shadow, they were an image of the sacrifice to come, of Jesus' sacrifice. They were only intended to provide a covering for man's sin until Jesus came and provided the sacrifice that takes away our sin. And so they are not to be given a greater place than that in the life of a child of God, much less as these Hebrew Christians were doing, allowing those Old Testament sacrifices to now compete in their life with uh, giving their attention to Jesus. He tells us in verse 9 that once the substance has appeared on the scene, that the shadow rightfully moves to the background. And so once Christ is a part of our lives, all of this other becomes a shadow in our lives. Notice also in verse 10, and this is the fifth point he makes. There's only 40, so you'll be… The fifth point he makes is that by the will of God, we have been sanctified through Christ once and not only once, once and for all. And when he uses that term sanctified, it's with the idea of us being saved, being forgiven, our lives being set aside for God's purposes and his use. 
And the reason that Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins once is because His sacrifice has the quality of permanence. His sacrifice has the quality of permanence. It lasts for all time. It lasts for eternity. Even the greatest Jewish sacrifice made on the Day of Atonement only lasted for a year. And it only affected a year, and it only dealt with the sins of our past. It didn't deal with the sins that would be committed in the future. And then in line with this, in verses 11 and 12, he makes his sixth point. He then, and then in order to demonstrate the eternal effectiveness of the forgiveness of sins that is found in Jesus, Jesus did what no other high priest under the old covenant ever did. Jesus did something that no other high priest ever did through the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that the old covenant operated, and the thing that he did is that he rested, verses 11 and 12. And you notice in verse 12 that he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And when Jesus sat down following his ascension, after his crucifixion and paying the price for the forgiveness of our sins, sitting down at the right hand of the Father communicated that both the Father and the Son are completely at rest with this salvation. And if they're at rest, the idea is we can be at rest in this salvation as well. I think it's very, very interesting, and I think it's very, very important to realize concerning all of the furnishings of the tabernacle and then later the temple that there was no chair supplied for the priest to sit down on. No chair was supplied. There were tables, there were altars, there were lamps, there was an ark, nothing to sit down on. And the, for the simple reason that their work was never finished. The absence of a chair wasn't an oversight on God's part. It was deliberate, and it was intended to communicate that the sacrifices under the law of Moses could not provide ultimate spiritual rest for anyone, not even the priest, much less the people. But again, in contrast to all of that, we're told in verse 12 that after Jesus' sacrifice of himself for our sins, he not only sat down, but he sat down at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, communicating that the salvation he has provided to mankind is a finished salvation, which is the only salvation a person can rest in. Jesus has provided us with a finished salvation. One of the great words that came out of his mouth 
while hanging on the cross, paying the price for our sins, was that great word, finished. On the cross, he cried out, it is finished. Three words in the English, one word in the original language, to telestai, and it literally means completed, perfectly finished, completely and perfectly finished. To bring to a close, to accomplish, to complete, to finish perfectly. And that's what Jesus was crying out on the cross. And by his death upon that cross at Calvary, Jesus paid the price that was required in order to provide us with a finished salvation. And a finished salvation is what we need because the only salvation a sinner can rest in is a finished salvation. And a finished salvation is a salvation that doesn't need anything added to it. No more sacrifices, no more anything. When something's finished, is finished. Jesus sat down because it was finished. When something's finished, if we try to add anything to it, we'll only mar it. When it's finished, it's perfect, it's done. And only a finished salvation is a secure salvation, and a secure salvation is the only salvation you can rest in and enjoy. And God wants us to rest in and enjoy our salvation. And we're told in verse 13 that Jesus' work of redemption is so finished that all he has to do is wait until his enemies are made his footstool. Now, the seventh point that he makes is in verses 14 through 18, and that is that when sin is forgiven by Jesus' offering, there's no need for further sacrifice or offering for sin. And he quotes from the Old Testament in order to make that point. And he quotes once again from a passage he quoted earlier in the letter, and that is from Jeremiah chapter 31. Because there would be a temptation on the part of maybe people who are living under the Old Covenant or a Jewish person to hear something like this and a sermon like this and say, well, that's all New Testament. That's what you believe. But I believe in the Old Testament, and the things that you're saying have no basis in the Old Testament. And the writer anticipates the objection, and he addresses it by quoting one of many places that he could have quoted in the Old Testament, quoting from uh, Jeremiah and reminding his readers of the, the witness that the Holy Spirit brings to all of this, that what he's declaring is biblical. It has a basis not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament as he warns people not to leave Christ to go back under the Old Covenant. Now, let me move to the second word, that word one. We leave the word once and then move into the word one, and they all are in kind of relationship with one another. That word one is again used in verse 12 and verse 14. And essentially, the writer tells us that there's only one sacrifice, verse 12, and only one offering, verse 14, that can provide us with the forgiveness of sins, salvation from the judgment that our sin deserves, 
and access to a personal relationship with God, and that these things are ours through faith in trust in Jesus alone, that there's only one way of salvation. There's only one way we access all of that, and that is through faith in Christ alone. Jesus Himself declared this very same thing in unmistakable terms. In John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus declared, I am the, singular, the way, the truth, and the life. And then just so nobody could mess that up, he further stated, no one comes under the Father but by me. Now, sometimes uh, people balk at the idea or balk at the truth that there's only one way to heaven or that there's only one salvation and that it is found in Christ alone. But it's true because only Jesus as the Son of God is qualified to provide that kind of a salvation. He's the only one who's qualified to save us from our sins. Someone might say, I believe Jesus to be a great teacher. I believe Him to be a great example. I believe Him to be a great prophet. I believe Him to be a great miracle worker. I think that's enough. But I don't believe Him to be divine. I don't believe Him to be God in human flesh. And the problem with that position is this. It is because Jesus is divine that He's sinless. And if he were not sinless, he could not save because he would need a Savior for himself. By refusing to accept his deity, you are left with a Savior who cannot save. I think it's also interesting in our culture when we talk about Christianity, and God is unashamed of this, completely, completely, unapologetically, unashamed shamed of the fact that there is but one way to be forgiven of our sins and to access heaven and to have a relationship with Him, and that is through His Son alone. He's not interested in keeping that a secret at all. He's not embarrassed by that truth one single bit. But sometimes when and, and God is very clear in the Scriptures, Jesus again Himself very clear in the Scriptures, that the way of salvation is narrow as opposed to broad. He declared in the Sermon on the Mount, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, the problem that sometimes people face, and I bring it up only to uh, relieve you of an objection to Christianity if you hold it and re remove any kind of encumbrances for you to come uh, to know Christ here this morning. We live in a culture where within this society, uh, narrowness concerning virtually anything uh, but especially concerning morals or spiritual things 
is viewed as anathema. That is viewed as something that's completely unacceptable. And so our culture has become very, very successful at fashioning people's thinking into almost always equating narrowness and narrow-mindedness as something that's negative, something to be avoided at all costs, and that broadness and broad-mindedness as something that's always a good thing, always a positive thing, always the characteristic of the person who is properly educated and properly enlightened in life and through life, which, of course, is complete nonsense. Allow me to give you uh, some examples from life where we're not only uh, tolerant of narrowness, but we expect it of others. And in fact, we demand it of others. I love narrow-mindedness in my pharmacist. When I give him or her the prescription, I assume that he or she is going to be so narrow-minded that they're only going to put the pills that are on that prescription into that bottle to give to me, that they don't get behind the counter and say, all of these pills are pink. I'm more broad-minded than this. That's a terribly narrow-minded doctor. I've got lots of pills. I've got orange pills. I've got blue pills. I've got yellow pills. I've got all manner of color of pills. And so I'm going to be more broad-minded than the doctor and load this up with all manner of pills. Well, if you survived their broad-mindedness, you probably would sue the living daylights out of them for their broad-mindedness in a court of law. I, when I fly, I always am comforted by the fact that, and, and hopeful of the fact for sure, that both the pilot and the air traffic controller are narrow-minded people. That when the, when the air traffic controller tells the pilot that he is to land that plane on runway 17, that the pilot isn't going to go, that's terribly narrow-minded of him. It's got, we've got dozens of runways that we can land this plane on at this airport, and he's going to force me into one. I'm more broad-minded than that. I'm going to land wherever I want to land. If you heard that kind of an argument going on between a pilot and an air traffic controller, you would probably, even under the danger of arrest, uh, try to get into the cockpit and encourage the pilot to be a little more narrow-minded than he's being at, at, at the moment. Why? Because there are situations in life where narrow-mindedness is right and broad-mindedness is wrong. I like my surgeon uh, to be narrow-minded. You go into the hospital to have the appendix removed. You wake up in recovery, and there he is or she is, and you're just kind of trying to get your bearings. Doc, was it, it's just, was it just the way you expected to find it? Was it a success? He says, oh, it was a success. It was more than a success. <laughs> I mean, I had you all opened up there and everything, and we were just going to take out the appendix. I thought, how narrow-minded of me. Well, you've got all of these other organs, some of them in duplicate form. And so while we were there, I decided to take out your right eye, your left lung, and one of your kidneys. <laughs> and what's true of pharmacists and airline pilots and surgeons is true of dentists and construction contractors and law enforcement and judges 
and auto technicians and literally everywhere else you want to look in life without narrow-mindedness being exercised continually in life all around us, society would slide into chaos. See, the issue to Jesus and the writer of the book of Hebrews and what should be the issue to us is not supremely whether something is broad or narrow, but whether something is true or false. And if broad is true concerning a particular subject, then great. But if narrow happens to be the truth about a particular subject, then great as well. And like the writer of the book of Hebrews, Jesus declared that concerning salvation and the path to God in heaven, the truth is that the gate is narrow and the way is difficult. And the idea is that is it so inconceivable that if we are able to accept the wisdom and necessity of narrowness in all of these other areas of our lives, then why should we have the same willingness, uh, shouldn't we have the same willingness to accept the wisdom and the necessity of a narrow salvation? And candidly, I think that we should be thankful that there's a way of salvation at all. I think that's the kind of humility that suits us as sinners. I'm very thankful that there is even a way to be saved. I remember watching a rescue show um, several years ago, one of those things where they have a flash flood and then somebody's out there in the middle of some kind of a causeway, I think it was Southern California, and then he's on the top of his car. The waters are really moving. I mean, if he gets into that water, he's in real trouble. They bring the helicopters in, the whole deal. You're on the edge of your seat, you know. You say, why in the wide world am I watching this, you know? You flip the channel, and then there's cops on the other channel. Oh, great. I want this. It makes more of a wreck of me than the other one. So here they are. They're trying to rescue this guy. He's on the top of the car. You know, the seconds are going by. He's going to get washed away. They bring in a helicopter. The helicopter's trying to get in there. There's the wind all the factors and everything, oh boy. And they lower down the winch line and the rescue harness to him, and, it, and it's blowing, and he's trying to grab without falling into the water, and I'm going crazy in my living room. And, and then finally he grabs a hold of it, and what does he do? He clings to that for dear life. He doesn't say, you sent me a black harness? I thought you were broad mind, more broad-minded than that. Don't you have something in a yellow or a green? I look nice and tan. <laughs> now, he was thankful for one salvation on that, on that show. And that's how I feel. I'm so glad that God has provided a way, and I don't have the slightest problem with the fact that the way to heaven is just one way. I'm just thankful that there is a way. And let me close very briefly here in verse 10, as I promised to, by returning to that phrase, for all. And again, one of the supposed objections that some people have to the narrowness of salvation in Christianity is that somehow because it's narrow, it must exclude 
some people from being saved. There's just this goofy thing in our minds. It's just the fashioning of the culture that somehow narrowness of necessity excludes a person from access to this salvation, and nothing could be further from the truth. Just because something is narrow doesn't mean that people are excluded as a result. Anybody can walk through that gate. Anybody can accept that Savior. Anybody that wants to be can be saved and forgiven today. No one is excluded. Jesus cried out to the whole world. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Anyone and everyone can come to the Lord in this way. It is a narrow way, but it doesn't exclude anyone. It is narrow in how to be saved, but it is not narrow in who can be saved. As the old saying goes, there are none who are so bad that they cannot be saved, and there are none who are so good that they need not be saved. Everyone who wants to be saved and forgiven can be saved and forgiven. God is willing to do that. And how does a person receive that forgiveness into their life? By just looking to God this morning and saying, God, I believe your assessment of me. I am a sinner. I've been less than perfect all of my life. And I believe what your word says, that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. But I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent your son to die on the cross for my sins. And I believe that's the Savior and that's the salvation that pleases you. And so to honor you and obey you, I put my trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins today. And when you do that, the Holy Spirit will come into your life this morning and you'll begin a relationship with God that will last all the way through this life and all of the life to come. And it's all there for the asking. And it's all there for the receiving this morning. Let's pray together. And I want to just ask as we sit here in a spirit of prayer, if there's any of us here this morning where you have never ever trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'd like to do that this morning, you'd like to confess your sin to him, receive his forgiveness, begin a relationship with him, I'd like you to just stand up in the seat that you're seated in. Just stand up right in that place. And if you do that, I will lead you in a prayer to invite the Holy Spirit into your life, to invite Jesus into your life, and then I will pray a prayer for you. And that's, that's what's being offered to you. God wants to save you. You need to have a moment in time in which you, as an act of your will, you put your faith in his son and, and give your life to the Lord, and that's the opportunity that's being given to you this morning. 
Sometimes people say, well, why does it have to be public? Everyone that Jesus called as a disciple to follow him, he called publicly. And he said, if you'll confess him before men this morning, he will confess you before his Father who is in heaven. But if you deny him before men, he will deny you before his Father who is in heaven. So anyone here this morning, just stand where it is that you're seated. You're not saved. You'd like to be saved. You don't have a relationship with God. You want a relationship with God. You want rest. God bless you. You want rest in your life in the most important area of your life, and that is what happens in eternity when you're going to face God one day. And, and all of it is there for the receiving this morning, and it's all bound up in one person, and that is in Jesus. Anybody else here this morning, you just simply stand. Whatever your age, whatever your background, however famous you are, however infamous you are, just you and God in this room this morning, just you and God, just listen to him, your creator, what he's telling you to do. All you have to do is just obey that, and you're going to be fine. And if you have never trusted in Christ, he is pulling on your heart and pulling on your life to make a stand this morning, and you just need to obey that and stand right now and enter into the life that God has for you. Anybody else here this morning? God bless you. Anybody else this morning? It's just you and God. There's no pressure on me. I just want to be able to go to bed tonight, lay my head on the pillow. No, everyone that stu I stood before today had an opportunity to do the single greatest thing that a person must do in life. I'll be satisfied. God bless you. Anybody else? Just stand. This is your day. This is your day. Just listen to God. One more moment. Anybody else? God's waiting to do a miracle. You can't believe the miracle he's waiting to do. Indescribable. Let him do it. Anybody else here this morning? All right. For those of you that are standing, I'm going to pray a prayer out loud. And as this prayer represents what you want to say to God, I just ask that you repeat it out loud. You don't have to shout it, but do repeat it out loud as a public confession of your faith, and then I'm going to pray for you. So just repeat after me. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, into this world to die that death upon the cross so that I could be saved and forgiven today. I put my trust in Jesus this morning as your Savior of my soul. Thank you for making salvation a free gift. And thank you for giving it to me this morning. Thank you for saving me.
And thank you for writing my name in your book of life. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm going to pray for you. Thank you, Lord, for those that are standing before you. Thank you for your indescribable love for each one of them. Thank you for protecting their life and bringing them to this day, Lord, of surrender to you. And Lord, we just ask that you do a miracle in their lives right now from this moment forward, that the power of your Holy Spirit in them will lead them into new paths and into Christ-likeness and the glory of a life that is literally heaven on earth. Bless them, Lord. Enrich them in every way with a fullness that is now theirs in Jesus. Thank you for saving them, Lord. Thank you so much for, for what you've done in their lives today. I pray additionally that you would just open up your word to them in a supernatural way. Give them an understanding of it and a hunger for it that comes right from you. Baptize them in your Holy Spirit, Lord, giving them the power to then live the life that they read on these pages. Thank you for their life, Lord. Use their lives to bring 30, 60, 100-fold to you in this day in human history. We commend them to you, Lord, with great excitement and with faith, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord.